Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. If you've been here the last few weeks, you ought to be able to find that uh, pretty easily. We've been in Philippians for a while, uh, but today we'll be in Philippians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you what one of my very favorite uh, child time pastimes was. I, uh, I love to play with uh, matchbox cars. And I don't know if that's still something that's a big deal today. The kids play with matchbox cars today. Uh, all of my kids are girls, and so there aren't any matchbox cars at my house. But when I was a little boy, that was the thing. And I remember I had all kind of cars. I had little cases for them. I could organize them. I would put them on little tracks. And I would imagine, you know, if you're playing with matchbox cars, it's about 95% imagination. Because they don't really do anything. They just sit there. They don't make any sound. You can't get in them. You can't go to some other destination. It's just imagination. But that was the thing I did when I was a little boy, matchbox cars. But you know, it wasn't very long and, and it sort of progressed. And I went from matchbox cars to remote control cars. And I remember the first remote control car I got. Now, it was about 700 years ago, so it was a lot different than remote control cars today. But uh, there was a wire, can you imagine this, between the control and the car. And so the wire was only like 10 feet long, so you couldn't get very far away from the car. But you could walk behind the car and you could steer it and drive it. Uh, Sometimes the batteries would last up to 15 minutes. It was a whole lot of fun. Uh, But I had a remote control car. And then I progressed again, and eventually as a junior hire, I was able to go to this amusement center that we had in my hometown, and we'd ride go-karts. We'd ride go-karts for hours. Now, go-karts, that was a lot of fun because it required a little bit less imagination because you were actually driving the car. Now, you still had to stay on the track, I mean, so you couldn't go to the next city. And, uh, you, you know, we, we would go a blazing 20 miles an hour, but to us it seemed like a, you know, a fast go-kart. Uh, but, I, but I had progressed. I had progressed from the matchbox cars to the, to the remote control cars to the go-karts. And then I turned 16, got my license. And I got a car, and uh, now I could drive a little faster, I could drive a little further, but there were still a lot of limitations because I didn't have permission to go all the places I wanted to go, and I didn't have gas money to go all the places I wanted to go, but at least I was one step closer. Well, today, I want you to know I have arrived. <laughs> I, uh, so I've got a car, and I've got a license, and I don't have a lot of money, but I've got enough money for gas, right? And so I, I can drive wherever I want to drive. And uh, me and my wife, in fact, we like to just drive. We like to go places we've never been before. And uh, we were talking this week, I think uh, at least every city, every major city in the eastern half of the United States, we have driven to it and through it and sort of explored it. Uh, We just like doing those kind of things. I love having the freedom, the limitless freedom of having a car and some gas money. But you can see sort of the progression from a matchbox car to finally having something where you don't need an imagination. You can actually drive and go where you want. There, There have been several stages. Now, I think a similar thing happens in our spiritual lives. You know, when we come to know Christ as our Savior, we're excited about that. And, you know, the Lord's very good to us, and he gives us uh, forgiveness and grace and mercy. We're adopted forever ever into the family of God. And, and all of that's good, but there's so much of the Christian life, just like playing with matchbox cars, there's, there, there's so much of the Christian life that you don't experience at the beginning. Most of what we hope to experience is just that, it's hope. We hope one day to know the abiding joy that only Christians can know. But you don't know that at the beginning. That's something that takes some maturity. To to have the kind of joy that no matter what happens in life, you're filled with joy, that's something in the beginning of the Christian life we just hope for. Another thing we hope for is wisdom. 
I mean, God gives us some wisdom at the beginning, but, but, but to have the wisdom of God, to, to know how to walk in the wisdom of God, that's something that's future for a new Christian. And so you look forward to that. Uh, the spiritual strength to be able to make commitments and withstand temptation, the, uh, the, the, the sense of satisfaction knowing that you're serving God and it's making an impact. See, when you become a Christian, all those things are future. Now, here's the problem, though. Many Christians never grow into those things. Many Christians stay at the matchbox car phase of the Christian life. They never mature. They, they, they never grow. They, they never experience the richness and the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. So I wonder why that is. Why do some Christians grow and experience this and some Christians just sort of stay where they are? I think some Christians, they're in church every year for 10, 20, 40, 50 years maybe. But spiritually, if you just measured their spiritual growth, there's, there's been little or none to speak of. They are still at the beginning phases. They've never matured. They're playing with spiritual matchbox cars. So how do we grow? Well, Philippians chapter 3 gives us the answer. And so we've been walking our way through the book of Philippians, and we said that Philippians 1 was all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 is all about the attitude of Christ. Now, Philippians 3 is going to be about how to grow in Christ, how to become spiritually mature. And this should encourage us because all of us have room to grow. All of us have things that we've not yet experienced that God wants us to experience in our Christian lives we want to know, we should want to know how we can grow in our spiritual life. And Philippians chapter 3 is going to tell us that. Now, there are two parts to this. And it's pretty neatly divided, uh, the first half and the second half of Philippians 3. The first half is going to tell us where we start from. And the second half is going to tell us the pathway to get there. So if you're going anywhere, if you've got a trip and you're trying to figure out how to get there, you got to know two pieces of information, right? You got to know where where your starting place is, and then you got to know the pathway. So my my family and I, we're headed to uh, Columbia, South Carolina tomorrow. Take us a couple of days to get there, but it's my oldest daughter's college orientation, and so we're just loading up the whole crew, and we're going together. And and so I've been mapping out how to get there. I've uh, never driven from Nacogdoches to Columbia. I think I've driven all of the little segments, but never in a row. And so... um and so we've plotted our course, and we, and we knew that, that, that to successfully plot the course, you've got to know where you start, because the course is different whether you're starting from Nacogdoches as opposed to starting from St. Louis or from New York City, right? So you've got to know where you start, and then you can figure out the path. The first 11 verses, Philippians 3, tell us where we start. The rest of the next 10, 11 verses tell us the pathway. Now let me, and this may surprise you, what people get wrong most often is not the pathway. Now the pathway is important and we're going to talk about the pathway in two weeks. Next week we're going to do something different. I hope you'll be here next week. But in two weeks we're going to pick up where we left off today and uh, we're going to talk about the pathway. But the most missed part of this is not the pathway. The, The thing people mess up most and the thing that keeps people from growing in their faith is the starting place. 
Now, the starting place is sort of hard to understand. So, I mean, we're going to put our thinking caps on this morning this, because this isn't just obvious. The path is going to be pretty obvious. I mean, there's still things to talk about, but it's not going to surprise you. But the starting place may surprise you a little bit. In fact, it may make you uncomfortable. And some of you, when we get to the end of the message today, you're, you're going to be thinking, why did he stop there? I mean, he, th- th- there's more to it than what he said. And you're right, there is. But we can't do it all in one day because you want to go eat lunch. Uh, but, but, but the starting place is hard to understand perhaps, but, it, but if, if we'll just dive into scripture, we can understand it. And I think for many of us, this will be the key to real Christian growth. So let's, um, I know it's a lot to read, but let's read the whole first 11 verses of Philippians three. He says, in addition, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. And so over and over, the Apostle Paul tells the people, the the Philippians, the people at the church at Philippi, he tells them to choose joy, choose joy. In the first chapter, he said, you can choose joy because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we learned what that meant. In the second chapter, he says, you can choose joy uh, because you can have the attitude of Christ. In this chapter, he's going to say, you can choose joy because uh, you will mature in your faith. And, and, and so he reminds them that the whole book is about having joy. Verse two, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And I'll tell you who that is in, in a moment or two. Verse three, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. And, and so again, we're going to unravel some of this as we go on. But uh, he says, we have a right relationship with God, not because of the flesh, not because of the things that we do, the good works that we do, the rules that we follow, but we have a right relationship with God because of something that God has done. And he will explain as we go. Verse four, he says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, if, if anybody could have ever earned a right relationship with God, if anybody merits a right relationship with God, because you deserve it, he said, it would be me. It would be the apostle Paul. And he's going to tell us why. Verse five begins his resume. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. That meant that he was born a Jew. Uh, of uh, the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, that meant he was really good at keeping the, the law, the rules. Regarding zeal, he persecuted the church, that meant he went on the hardest, toughest mission trips they had. Uh, regarding the righteousness uh, that is in the law, blameless. He said, nobody's brought an accusation against me. So he has this really good resume. Paul was a before he came to know Christ, Paul was straight and narrow. Nobody found a fault in Paul. But look at verse seven. He says, but everything that was gained to me, all that stuff that I thought was so good that everybody else was impressed with, everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. He said, on one hand, I've got all this stuff that I was really good at, all this spiritual stuff, goody stuff, following all the rules. And on the other hand, I've got what Christ has done for me. And, and what I've learned is that this, this stuff is worthless compared to the great provision in Christ. Now, he repeats himself a little bit, but emphasizes it in verse 8. He says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, when he says know Christ in this passage, it's the same thing as 
love Christ. So think love when you see the word know here, not in every passage in the Bible, but here, knowing Christ equals loving Christ. He goes on to say, still in verse eight, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. So the word dung here, if we're just sort of crass, just very literal here, referred to bird dung, bird droppings. I mean, what he says is that uh, compared to knowing Christ, nothing else matters at all. It's it's like bird droppings. That's the value of everything else. But knowing Christ is uh, what's most important. Now, verse nine is the critical verse. It's the key verse in the whole passage. So I want us to look closely. He said, and be found in him. And so if you're going to underline something there, are the two most important words, in him. And to be found in him, we're going to come back to that, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. Now, righteousness means a right standing with God. So he says, because I've been found in him, I have a right standing with God that is not the result of me keeping the rules but it's the result of me having faith in Christ. Now that should shake you up a little bit. Listen to it again. He says, I have, because I'm in Christ, I have a right relationship with God, not by keeping the rules, but because I have faith in Christ. And then verse 10, he says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. Remember, know him means love him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. Now, as I told you, the most important two words here, I guess, would be in him. He says, I have been found, right at the beginning of verse 9, I have been found in him. Now, this, um, this idea of in him is hard to understand. What, what does Paul mean when he says he is in Christ? He doesn't say he's near Christ. He doesn't say he's close to Christ, connected to Christ, next to Christ, holding hands with Christ. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, I am in Christ. I don't really know what that means. I mean, if I say that I am, I am uh, next to you know, somebody who stands here, Jonathan, who led worship a moment ago, I, I stood next to him. But what would it mean that I'm in him, in somebody? Well, this is a phrase that Paul uses over and over and over. In fact, if you go back to the very first verse of Philippians, Philippians 1.1, Paul says, the letter is written to all of the saints who are in Christ. So so that's who he wrote to, or people who were in Christ. Philippians 1.13, he's talking about his imprisonment. He said, I am in prison because I am in Christ. That's why he was in prison. You go to one of the last verses in the book, Philippians 4.21, he says, Greet everyone who is in Christ. And then if you read the other stuff that Paul writes, Philippians, I'm sorry, uh, Colossians and Ephesians, Paul's always talking about in Christ, in Christ. What in the world does it mean to be in Christ? Well, that, listen, church, is extremely important because that's our starting place. God wants us to grow spiritually. We want to grow spiritually. But you can't grow until you know where you start. And we start in Christ. And this is, this is so wonderful. I mean, this is such good news that you're in Christ. Listen, you need to know what this means. You will be happy to know what it means to be in Christ. So let's just take the rest of our time and let's go back to verse 9 and 10 and see if we can figure out exactly what Paul means when he says in Christ. Now, for you students of the Bible, 
I'm telling you, this will make every other book that Paul has written easier to read. Because if you don't really understand what it means to be in Christ, you're not going to understand Colossians, you're not going to understand Philippians, I mean Ephesians, because he uses this over and over and over. So what does it mean, this mystery, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, let me show you three things that we see in verses 9 and 10. First, to be in Christ means that our performance does not determine our position. Our performance, by that I mean how you live, how you keep the rules, how you don't keep the rules maybe, uh, how you serve God or don't serve God, your performance, how you live, does not determine your position. That means uh, how you relate to God. Your performance does not determine your position. Now, from the very beginning of time, uh, in the very first pages of the Bible, people have been trying to shore up their position with God. You know what I mean? Uh, you look at Adam and Eve, and God gave, put them in a paradise, said you can do whatever you want to do, but just don't eat this fruit. Well, what do Adam and Eve do? They eat the fruit. And as soon as they eat the fruit, they, they notice something. Do you know what they notice? They notice that they are naked. And, and so they're ashamed, and they feel guilt, and all of this comes because they've just sinned. So what do they do about their guilt and their shame? They go and they make a covering for themselves. Now, this wasn't so that they wouldn't see each other naked. That wasn't the issue. They were trying to cover themselves and their shame before God. What they were doing is they felt like their relationship with God was broken because they had sinned, and they're trying to shore it up. They're trying to do something to make, to, to, so, so that God won't be so angry at them, so that, so, so that the relationship between them and God wouldn't be so broken. And ever since that time when people sin, they, they, we wrestle with this. We, we're always trying to make things up with God. We're always trying to overcome our guilt. We're always trying to work past it. And so here's the pattern that people get into. We sin, and then we feel really bad about our sin, Okay, you, you track him with me? You, you've done this? You've sinned, some of you? And, and then you feel really bad because you sinned. And so then you, you resolve to never sin again. And you make a bunch of commitments. I will never do this again. And I'll read my Bible three hours a day. And I'll, I mean, we make all these promises to God. And then what happens? Then we sin some more. And then we feel guilty about that. And so we make new promises. And then just back and forth and back and forth. People are constantly trying to shore up their relationship with God. It's as if we're we're afraid that we're on the outs with God and and that our relationship with God is so strained that it might break. And so we're we're trying to make it up. God, I know this week has not been a good week. And, you know, there were three things that I did that I I said I'd never do again. And I did all three of them. And I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. And I want to make that up to you. I want to make that up to you. I want to however, and then you come up with some way you're going to make it up to them. But here's the problem with that. Our performance, how you act, how I act, does not determine our position with God. We're trying to make up something that frankly doesn't need to be made up because your position with God was never determined by how you lived anyway. Now I can show it to you this way. If a lost person came to you, Okay, someone who is not in church and they're not a Christian, if they came to you and said, I, I'm so, I feel so much guilt because of my sin, my life is messed up, and I want to get right with God, can you help me? And then they said, here's what I plan to do. I'm going to quit doing this, I'm going to quit doing that, 
and I'm going to try to really get my life straightened out. And when I really get it in good shape, then I'm going to, I'm going to pray and ask God to save me. And when I get my life so fixed up, then I'm going to come to God. Now, hopefully you know the gospel enough to correct them. What would you say to them? You don't clean your life up and become worthy and then come to God because you'll never be worthy. You would tell them, no, you just have to come to God just as you are. I mean, we sing that song all the time, just as I am. That's how we come to God. And, and you would say to that person, you don't need to fix everything and then come to God. You just need to come to God and be forgiven because of the sacrifice of Christ. Now, we're pretty clear on that when it comes to a lost person. But what's true of a lost person, that, they, they, that their position with God is determined by Jesus, not by what they've done, is also true of people who know Christ. You see, it's also true that, that for me, I mean, I'm a Christian, but, but still, whether or not I'm on the outs with God, doesn't depend upon me, it depends upon the work of Christ on the cross. Now, I want you to see this, because I don't want you to think I'm just making it up. Look back at verse 9. And we're going to look at this verse over and over and over. But if you look back with me at verse 9, and I can show it to you on the screen, perhaps this will be easier. He says, and to be found in him, so you see that's that phrase, in him, we're in him, what does it mean to be in him? Well, he's going to tell us, not having a righteousness of my own. Now, what did we say righteousness meant? Righteousness means a right standing with God. So Paul said, I have a right standing with God, but it's not my own from the law. He says, I don't have a right standing with God because I've kept all the rules. I don't have a right standing with God because I've given all of the money. I don't have a right standing with God because I've, you know, I, I'm just a really sharp Christian. No, I have a right standing with God and it is not because of what I've done. My performance does not determine my, my position. Did you know that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Now let that sink in a moment. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you have done that make God, makes God love you or accept you any less because your acceptance by God does not depend on your performance. So what if, um, what if I sold everything I had I mean, everything. I had a yard sale. I sold everything. I sold my house. I sold all my clothes, all my property. I cashed in all the money I could get my hands on. And then I gave everything to the poor. I mean, so much that all I had with the clothes on my back, I didn't even have a way to eat lunch. And I gave it all the poor. Would God love me more or accept me more if I did that than he does right now? No. Because my position is not determined by my performance. That's, that's the first half of, uh, of, of verse 9, Philippians 3, 9. Well, what if I went to, uh, what if I went to the foreign mission field and, and, and never to return? Would God be impressed and love me more then? No. What if I went one whole week and never had a lustful thought? Would God love me more then? No. Because our position is not determined by our performance. Now, Paul uses himself as an illustration, and we looked at it a moment ago. If you look at, back at verse 5, he goes through this resume. Circumcised on the eighth day, uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, kept all the rules, um, persecuted Christians, all these things. 
And so Paul did a lot of good things. And he said, but you know, when it came right down to it, none of that earned me a right relationship with God because, because your position is not determined by your performance. So let me ask you, how are things between you and God? If I were to ask God today about you, and I said, well, how are things between God, how are things between you and you or you? What's the answer? How are things between you and God? Well, there are only two answers, two possible answers. Number one, it could be that you are not a child of God, that, that you are lost in your sins, that there's never been a time in your life when you understood you're guilty of sin, that your only hope was what Jesus did, and that you surrendered to Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, and you made him the Lord of your life, and so you are lost. That's one option. The other option is that you have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ because of the work of Christ on the cross, and you are his precious child, and he loves you and he accepts you fully. Now there's no in-between. So you're either one or the other. How are things between me and God? Well, listen, things are great between me and God. Not because of my performance, not because I've had a sinless week, but because my position is not determined by my performance. Does that make sense? So if, if my position with God is not, con not determined by my performance, then what does determine it? Well, glad you asked. Number two, what does it mean to be in him? My position's not determined by my performance or my performance is not determined by my position. Number two, our acceptance is based on the life and death of Jesus Christ. I'm accepted by God. It's not determined by what I've done. It's not, God doesn't look down and say, wow, Noel, great, weak. You didn't have any lustful faults. You, uh, you, you, you tithed, you... Um, you, you, you obeyed the speed limit. You know, you didn't lose your temper at your family. You know, you've had a great week. I, I accept you because you've had a good week. No, no, I, I, I'm not accepted because of what I've done. I'm accepted because of what Jesus has done. Now, what if I told you, well, let me ask you this. How many people are worthy of having a relationship with the father, of having a right relationship with the father? Or more specifically, do you think I'm worthy of that? I mean, I know you don't know me real well, and you hadn't been following me around this last week, but do you think I'm worthy of having a right relationship? I'm worthy of that? Well, let me tell you something about my week last week. Maybe you'll change your mind. First of all, last week, I concluded a 40-day spiritual fast. And it wasn't just an ordinary fast. I didn't eat or drink anything for 40 days. And last week, I met Satan face to face and I stared him down and he brought his greatest temptation and I resisted every time. And last week, I suffered at the hands of sinners. I was beaten and I was tortured and yet I never complained. And the only time I opened my mouth was to offer them my forgiveness. And last week, I walked on water I healed a blind man on the spot and I fed 5,000 men with a loaf of bread. Now, you think I'm worthy of Christ, of the Father's love? I did all those things last week. I did do those things in Christ. Does that make sense? Do you understand what it means to be in Christ? I, I, I'm not just near Christ. I'm not just associated with Christ. I am in Christ. When Christ did those things, 
I did those things. When Christ died on the cross, now we understand part of this and we forget about the other part. We, we generally understand that when Christ died on the cross, that he paid my penalty, that he died my death. You know that, right? But, but just as true, when he lived his perfect life, he lived a perfect life for me. So he died for me, that was like me dying on the cross, except he was in my place. When he lived a perfect sinless life, when he faced all of that adversity, when he stared down Satan, that was me. I am in him. And so why does God accept me? Why do I have a right relationship with God? Well, because I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. You say, well, you had a bad week last week. You, you lusted last week. You, you weren't faithful last week. You, you said things that were untrue last week. Well, maybe, maybe not. But, but you know, my standing with God is not because of what I've done. I'm in Christ. When God looks at me, he sees what Christ has done for me. Now, again, I, I don't want you to think I'm making this up. Let, let's look back at, uh, at, at our verse here. And to be found in him, that's that phrase again, in him, not having a righteousness, a right relationship with God. I know you can't see this over here, but not having a right relationship with God from my own, but here's where the right relationship comes from. One that is through faith in Christ. How do I have a right relationship with God? Because I've trusted Christ. I am in him. Isn't that good news? What does it mean to be in him? It means that my, my performance does not determine my position but I am accepted by God because of what Christ has done. He has borne my shame. He has lived a perfect sinless life for me. And he has died a terrible death for me. My acceptance is based on the life and death of Christ. Now, the third thing, as we're talking about in Christ, the third thing that that, that means, and we see it right here in this passage, is our goal becomes knowing him rather than impressing him. Our goal in life is, is to know him or to love him, not to impress him. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, I want you to see, we've been looking at verse nine, but now look at verse 10. It's the very next verse where, where he says, my goal is to know him and the power of, of, his, resur- of his resurrection. If you will love, if you will know Christ, you will be so drawn into, into that relationship that as a result of that, your life will change. See, it, it's not that I, I changed my life so that God will accept me and then we have a love relationship. See, I think that's how we think. If I, can, if I can just live a clean enough life, if I can just be good enough, if I can just keep enough rules, then me and God can love each other. But it's the other way around. No, God loves me because of Christ, what Christ has done for me. So it starts with the love relationship, and then that leads to, leads to a change uh, in, in my life. If I try to impress God, and I'm convinced that's what a lot of people who come to church every week are trying to do. If I try to impress God, God, I'm going to do better so you love me more, so you won't be mad at me, so you answer my prayers. If I try to impress God, Every time, that'll lead to despair. That'll lead to despair. I, I, I saw a, a um, piece of a television show this week about some guys who were uh, digging for worms. I didn't know that was a job, but it is. And uh, so this television show about two guys digging for worms. And one of them got caught in quicksand. Now, I don't know if you know much about quicksand. I did not. 
but uh, this guy began to sink in quicksand. And what they said is that if you get in quicksand, the more you struggle, the faster you sink. That's a, you know, so what do you do? You, well, you just, you pray, I guess. But uh, so, so he's, he's struggling, but that's making him sink and they're panicked. They're trying to get him out. And of course, it's a TV show they do. Um, but in our Christian life, same thing is true. The more you struggle to impress God and to earn a favorable relationship with him, the more you're just going to sink in despair. And, and so you, you've experienced the cycle, and I described it a moment ago. We sin, and then we feel bad because we've sinned. And so then we make this promise to God that we're never going to sin again, and... Um, and we, and we set all of these lofty goals, you know, I'm going to read my Bible this amount, I'm going to witness, I'm going to go on a mission trip, I'm going to give a bunch of money. And, and, and so, because we, we feel so bad, we're trying to impress God. God, I'm not really as, as sorry as it looks like I am. I know I've led a really sorry week this last week, but, but, but that's not who I am. So I'm going to do better. And so we, we make these new goals. But the problem is we're the, still the same broken person. And, and, and if you sin last week, now that you've even raised the bar higher, guess what you're going to do this next week? You're just going to sin again, right? I mean, God's working to change you, but that's not how the change happens. And so you sinned, you felt guilty, you, you made new commitments, you set the bar higher, you sin again. And now you're in despair. And so you set the bar even higher and you sin again. And you set the bar higher and you sin again. And, and so that, that, that's why you have so many people who just sort of give up on the Christian life. And sometimes I'll call people who hadn't been in church in two or three years, and I hadn't been here long enough to do that, but I will uh, after a few years. So I'll call people and say, I haven't seen you in a year or two. What's going on? I mean, you just, you, you were in church every Sunday, and now you, I just don't see you anymore. And they'll say, you know, I'm just tired of it. You, you know, I kept trying to do better, and I kept trying to do better, and, and nobody knows, but I kept failing. And, and I would make God all these promises, and I would beg him, and I would cry, and I'd say, oh, God, I'm going to do better. Just give me another chance, one more chance. I'll do better. And I would set these goals, and I would fail, and I would do it again. And they'd say, I'm just tired of it. I, 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 am, I am a loser. I am a sinner, and I can't do it. I am tired. See, they've just gone through this spiral of despair. And, and they, they're in this spiral because... Because they're trying to impress God. But notice when the Apostle Paul, after he said verse 9, you know, I have a righteousness not of my own, but it's of, of Christ. He says, my, so, my goal is, and, and he could have said some different things there. He could have said, my goal is to work harder than any other person ever works for the kingdom so you'll be impressed. Or he could have said, my goal is, you know, I've got this right standing with you, so my goal is to be so perfect in obedience that you will take notice of me. Or he could have said, my goal is to give so sacrificially uh, that you will be impressed with me. But he didn't say any of those things. He said, my goal is to know and love you more. Now, are there some changes that need to happen in our life? Sure. And, and there is a part two to this message that if the Lord allows, we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But, but you, you can't do the second part until you understand the first part. That's the whole problem with so many people's frustrating Christian lives. They're trying to do the second part. Well, they're pressing on. They're working hard. They're, they're making commitments. But it doesn't work unless you start by understanding that you're in him and that God loves and accepts you perfectly. And there's not anything you're going to do to make him love and accept you more because you are in Christ. You're not in you. 
If you were just in you, well, buddy, you had a lot of work to do to get accepted by God. In fact, more than you, you could ever do. But you're not in you. You're in Christ. That's such, such good news. I think about um, Jesus when the, when the men brought her, the woman, brought him rather, the woman who was caught in adultery. Do you know that story? John chapter 8, a woman was caught in adultery. So they brought her to Jesus. They, they were trying to make a point about something else, and you can read it for yourself. But Jesus, um, he addressed the crowd, and he did some things, and everybody leaves. And uh, then Jesus looks to her and says, uh, where are your accusers? And she says, well, I, I guess there aren't any. And then Jesus tells her two things. You know what they are? First, he says, neither do I condemn you. He, he looks at her. right in the eye. I mean, He knows she's guilty, and she knows that he knows she's guilty. But he says, uh, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Now, secondly, he said, go and sin no more. Now, go and sin no more is very important. But it started, it, it, it wasn't the first step. The first step was, I want you to know that you are not under God's condemnation. Now, do I need to make some changes in my life? Do I need to, you know, work on all kinds of things? Being a truth teller and making sure I never lust and being more responsible and more faithful and more sacrificial. I need to work on all those things. if, If you knew, you wouldn't come back and hear me speak next week, okay? I need to work on a lot of stuff. But it's, it, it doesn't start with, oh no, I'm condemned of the Lord. And if I don't get this thing straightened out, God's going to be through with me. Now, let me tell you, I am in Christ. Things between me and God are fine because my position's not determined by my performance. And I'm not going to live my life trying to impress God. You, you know why you can't, why you shouldn't live your life to impress God? Two simple reasons. Number one is you can't. God wouldn't be impressed by anything you do anyway. I mean, everything you do is corrupted by sin. Everything I do is corrupted by sin. Even the most noble sounding things that I do is probably done so it would impress somebody. I mean, there's not anything in me that could ever impress God. So don't try to impress God because number one, you can't. But number two, you don't need to. Because God is impressed with Jesus. And if you're a child of God, you are in Christ. I'm not an emotional person, but I get emotional about this. I am in Christ. I don't need to impress God. I just need to love him. I just need, I just need to love him. Now, uh, I want to I be practical. Uh, and we're going to get to a lot of practical stuff in a couple of weeks, but we get to the second half of the chapter uh, but, but there are a couple of commands in the, chap, in the part that we read. And I, and I think these commands are helpful because they, they tell us how to get this position in our mind. Because I'm convinced that a lot of people, you just, we, we, we just don't realize our position. We, we, we think we're in such deep water with God and that's keeping us from, from growing. So if we'll follow these two commands that he gives us in Philippians 3, I think it'll help us to not forget our position. Command number one, it's in verse two. He says, watch out for the dogs. Uh, so uh, to, to make this a little 
clearer to you, the point in your outline is beware of the accusers. Now, let me tell you who the dogs were. Um, there were there were these people who had come into the church at Philippi, and they were uh, they were saying to the Christians, "You're not doing enough good stuff to be right with God." It, so they were accusing them, and, and in fact, the Bible says that Satan is the chief accuser. And so I think this is a strategy of Satan. Now, the specific sin that they were talking about with the Philippians was circumcision. And, and so uh, these people were coming in and they were saying, listen, it's, you hadn't been circumcised, so you're on the outs with God because you're not, you know, you, you're not following all the rules. And so Paul says, don't listen to the dogs. Don't listen to the accusers. Understand that Satan's most effective weapon in your life is to get you to forget the identity that you have with Christ. Satan wants you to think that you're on the outs with God. Satan wants you to think that you've got to impress God, that you've got to, you've got to work to earn this because Satan doesn't want you and God to love, have a love relationship. He, he wants you to have a you owe him relationship, but we don't have that kind of relationship. So, so beware of the accusers. Beware of that little voice in your head that says, you're on the outs with God. You're not, you don't have God's favor in your life because you hadn't, you hadn't lived well in the last week. No, I am in Christ. And I will not allow the accuser to, to derail me from knowing what God has said is true of my life. Satan's strategy is to make us forget what God has said about us and to evaluate our standing before him by some other criteria. So, so beware of the accusers. The second thing, he says in verse 3, do not put confidence in the flesh. So th there's sort of a flip side to this. Some, some people are struggling in their Christian growth because you're beating yourself up and, and, and you're, you're trying to impress God rather than loving God. But there's some people on the other side of this, and, and that's what Paul's talking about in verse three, four, and five. You think you've done enough good stuff that you've sort of earned a favorable standing with God. And you're just as wrong because you hadn't earned anything. If you have anything, it's because of what Christ has done, not what you have done. Do not put confidence in your flesh. So how can we remember this? Because you know, th this is something that's easy to forget. I am, um, well, I don't have time to share a whole personal story with you, but, but let me just tell you, if, if you don't hear this over and over and over, you, Satan is gonna confuse you and you're going to get back into this mode where you think, I got to impress God, I got to impress God, I got to, I got to pay penance for my sin, I got to make up for my wrongdoing, I've, I'm on probation in my relationship with God. All that lie, lying way of thinking. We've got to have some way to keep the, the gospel, the fact that I could be right with God because of what Jesus did, the gospel in our mind all the time. We've got to work to do this because it's not... It's, it's not what we will default to. So let me tell you how to work to do it. Pray this prayer. I encourage you to pray it every day. And I, and I should have had it printed in your outline, and I apologize I didn't, but I'm going to show it to you on the screen in a moment. So you can scribble it down, or you can email me, and I can send it to you. Uh, but, but pray this prayer. Pray it every day. Pray it 10 times a day if you need to pray it 10 times a day. But pray this prayer to remind you that you are in Christ. Now, I'll, I'll, before I show you the prayer, let, let me tell you this. I, I copied this from somebody. So, I mean, some of you may have read this book, and so this prayer will seem very familiar to you. I copied this from a J.D. Greer book, The Prayer Part. 
and uh, because he says it better than I can say it. Uh, but it's scriptural. That, that's why he said it. That's why I'm telling you, because it's scriptural. But let's look at this prayer. He says, in Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. And I'm telling you, if you'll pray that every day, Christ, I am in you. And so there's nothing I can do to make God make you love me more. And there's nothing I have done to make you love me less. That will serve as a reminder that you're in Christ. You're in Christ. Now, I want us to pray that aloud. Can we do that? So I, I know audience participation is not everybody's favorite thing, but, uh, but you know, wake up your neighbor for just a minute and uh, let's, uh, let, let's work through this. All right, we're going to say it aloud. Are you ready? Let's go. In Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Now, let me give you one more part of the prayer. It says this, your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. God, I have your presence and your approval. Now, why, why do we have presence and approval? Because we've just really hit it out of the ballpark last week? Because I didn't lust any last week? Because I always told the truth and never exaggerated last week? Is that why I have his approval? No, I have his approval because I'm in Christ. But his approval is all I need for everlasting joy. You know, the apostle Paul was in prison, probably awaiting his execution he had lost his freedom, he had lost his comfort, he had lost his future, but he was filled with joy because the one thing he didn't lose was the full acceptance of the Father. Let's, let's say this aloud. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Now let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. I know this is hard to understand. I've asked myself, why is it hard to understand? And I, I just think it's because, at least in me, I just have this, I got to pay God back mentality. And I know I was saved by the grace of God, not by my own works. But just over and over in my life, I just feel like, oh, I messed up. I got to pay God back. I fell short. I got to pay God back. And I think a lot of people are like that. So when I hear this, it's just, when I read this in the Bible, it, it just cuts against the grain how I think and it makes it hard but there's nothing I could tell I could say father this morning that's better than this that I am in Christ help us to know what that means embrace that and help that be the beginning of real maturity and real change we pray this in Jesus name amen let's stand together and let's celebrate that as we sing